Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker, and I live a pretty ordinary life, and I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind, a revelation about who He is and how we fit into the story He is telling. Even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books with a unifying theme, God desires a relationship with us. So I'm glad you're here, and I hope by the time we're done, you've learned a little bit more about who God is and the relationship he desires to have with you. Today we'll be unpacking the verses in John chapter 2, where Jesus performs his first miracle, turning water into wine. So let's get started. We'll read the first couple of verses. Verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Now, remember, our author, John, is very detailed about his setting and does a great job recording for us the specifics about the who, the what, the when, the where. So in these first couple verses, we learn a few things. The when is a third day. The what is a wedding. Where is in Cana of Galilee. And who involves Jesus' mother, Jesus, and his disciples. So the third day could be perhaps the third day since Nathaniel joined the disciples. Or it could be the third day of the wedding. It's not exactly clear here. Weddings could stretch several days. And it's also interesting foreshadowing because, as we know, Jesus' resurrection is on the third day. So we have something occurring here on the third day that is a special display of his power. And the Holy Spirit is attentive to details like this. And so for readers, and probably for the writer, John, uh, this is a bit of foreshadowing. So it's the third day from either the beginning of the wedding or from Nathaniel joining the disciples, or perhaps both. Uh, But regardless, he's given us a when, a third day. And we're at a wedding where Jesus' mother is present as well as Jesus and his disciples. So likely these folks are people that Jesus's family knows really well. They could even be um, extended family members, which might explain why Mary is particularly concerned when they run out of wine. Another point to notice here is that John, our author, introduces Mary not as Mary, but as Jesus's mother. This is interesting because later on in John's book, it's actually in chapter 19, uh, when Jesus is on the cross, Jesus commissions John to take care of his mother and presents John, his mother, as this is now your mother and mother, this is now your son. Uh, We can read that in John 19, verse 26. It says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. So we know that John is the disciple that Jesus loved. He refers to himself as that a few times in this gospel. And he's basically saying, I'm going to die. Now, Jesus knew he would rise again, he would be on earth for several days, but he would ascend. And so he is providing for his mother. He's he's basically saying, John, adopt my mom. Mom, adopt John. Because Jesus knows that Mary is likely at this point a widow. 
And as the oldest son, he would be responsible to care for her. And so he's making provision for his mother. So years later, as John is writing this, he refers to her as Jesus' mother, not as Mary. Probably because he has a real deep affection for her, he likely took care of her until she died. And so just an interesting side point, he refers to her as Jesus' mother. And we have the situation where they're all at the wedding. And in verse 3, John, our writer, says, When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Now, if we read this with a Western mindset, this exchange can seem extremely rude and odd. Uh, why on earth would Jesus and Mary interact this way? So let's take a look at the nuances here. Remember, Jesus and Mary are not Westerners, and they did not speak these words in English. They spoke them in Aramaic or Greek. And as we know, not all languages and customs translate well. So the nuances and the meanings of the original language are really important to pay attention to. And it's important as we read the Bible in English to remember that these were not the actual original words meant. And some of the nuances we would put in cultural frameworks that we have were not present. So for instance, uh, Jesus says, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Or perhaps in your version, if I'm reading from the Holman Christian, in your version, it might actually start out with woman. What does this concern of yours have to do with me? Or, or another way that we've translated this in English. But the idea of calling your mother woman uh, seems in a Western mindset to be a bit rude perhaps a little um, arrogant, but that is not at all what is happening here. Using the word woman here is, is like saying dear lady. It's a term of endearment. It's actually very polite and respectful in this culture. And if you noticed when I read from John chapter 19, a few minutes ago, Jesus, when he presents John to Mary and Mary to John, he says, woman, here is your son. He doesn't use the term mother there either. We know from our studies of, of this culture and this time that the term woman here is actually quite respectful and Mary would not be offended that he called her woman. Now it is interesting that he doesn't use the term mother. So he's very polite, but he is now operating as the son of God, not necessarily the son of Mary. So even though he is Mary's son, his primary function here is Messiah, the son of God. And so he is going to respectfully say, why is this a concern? And what does this have to do with me? He then says, my hour has not come. So he's asking why the running out of wine is his problem. Um, and he probably, you know, knows that she has an inkling that he might be able to solve this problem. So first of all, if Mary is very close to the wedding party or the parents that are uh, putting on this wedding, whether it's the bride's side or the groom's side, running out of wine would be incredibly embarrassing. And so this is a huge uh, faux pas for this particular wedding party. And so I can't help but wonder. So, you know, Mary knows that Jesus is God's son. And Mary knows that he has the ability to perform miracles, that he is above uh, laws of physics and stuff. She hasn't seen it yet. She hasn't seen him perform miracles, but she knows. She's known this her whole life. He was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. You know, she was still a virgin. This is, 
you know, something she's held close to her heart. And I wonder if during her life she has endured some sideways glances, some whispering. People knew that she and Joseph were not married. They, they could put the timeline together and figure out that Jesus was born out of wedlock. And I just can't help but wonder if now that he has been baptized and has some disciples, uh, if perhaps Mary is starting to think, this is it. This is it, Jesus. This is your time. You can show. You can show your miracles and you can begin to sort of like defend your honor and perhaps hers. Now, uh, this is not in the text. I'm I'm just wondering, as a, as a mom... And as someone who is just thinking about what Mary might possibly be going through, for her to come and ask him, you know, Jesus, can you help these guys out, essentially? The, the wine is running out. And his response, it's polite, but it's distance. Like, technically, this isn't my problem. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Which, if you haven't read much of John, might seem like a really odd statement. But actually, Jesus references his hour several times throughout John's gospel. If you flip over to chapter 7 verse 6, Jesus is talking with his uh, brothers and he, he says, I'll read it here, verse 6, Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. Uh, they, they were wanting him to go down to a festival and he knew that if he went publicly, he would probably get in some trouble with the religious leaders because he'd already stirred the pot and we'll, we'll get to chapter 7 soon. Uh, in this podcast, but just a little foreshadowing there. And then a little later in that same chapter, verse 30, uh, Jesus does go down and uh, the religious leaders do try to seize him. And verse 30 says, then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And so we have this sense again about his hour and it's not yet there. Uh, next chapter over, chapter 8, verse 20. It says, he spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple complex, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And so we see this repeated sense of Jesus's hour not yet coming. And then in chapter 12, we get to a point where Jesus recognizes his hour has come. And in fact, in verse 23, he replies and says to them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And a few chapters over, as Jesus is being crucified, chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. So we have this repeated theme in this gospel of Jesus' hour, not yet, and then it is. It is the it is and then it is present at the crucifixion. So Jesus' hour is all about his glorifying of God, which happens at his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so he makes this statement to Mary. And what's so interesting here is that it really is his first miracle. He's saying, my hour has not yet come. And I wonder if he knows his, I wonder if he knows her heart, that she's looking for him to be glorified, for that honor to be restored, that perhaps she has a sense that like, Listen, Jesus, we've waited our whole life for this. Your father and I know that you're the Messiah. This, this could be your moment. <laughs> and he says, it's not. My hour has not yet come. And so how does Mary respond? And it's it's so beautiful. As you look at verse 5, she turns to the servants. She says, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. 
And then John goes on to give us a little more detail about what happens next. Verse 6, now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. So we have this exchange between Mary and Jesus where she's saying, Jesus, this could be your big moment. They're out of wine. And Jesus is saying very politely, listen, dear lady, what concern is this for me? My hour is not yet come. He's not seeking his glory quite yet, but yet he still responds. He still responds out of compassion. Mary doesn't know this yet. She doesn't know, but she completely trusts that whatever he's about to do, that they should obey him. And so she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. He may tell them to just say, we're out of wine. Mary doesn't know, or he may perform a miracle. And that's exactly what he does. So she, in that moment, has this idea like, God, this could be it. And yet when he pauses and gently redirects her, she responds humbly and says, not my ways, but yours. Whatever he tells you, do it. But in that moment, imagine that you're Mary. She didn't know. And, and you have some moments, I'm sure, in your life where you don't know. You're standing there wondering, how is this going to play out? I'm looking for this miracle. And I really think if God acted in this way, it would just work out perfectly. And, and what I can see, how this should play out, this, this next action, God, would be just the right thing to do. It would be amazing. And we, we get in this advice-giving mode to God or, or in our prayer time requesting that he act in a certain way. And sometimes he responds and he grants our requests. And sometimes it's in the ways we expect in other ways. And in other times, it's in ways we do not expect. But Mary here is a picture of humble obedience. Do whatever he tells you. And so we have these six stone jars and they've been set there for Jewish purification. We're given that note by John. And I love this. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. You know, John, for all of his preciseness, you know, he doesn't say whether it's 20 or 30 or 28. He's saying it's somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons. So six, six jars and, you know, somewhere in the nature of 120 to 180 gallons of water that, that they could hold. Right. So he's, he loves specificity, even to the point of estimating, you know, how many gallons of water. And Jesus says to these servants, fill the jars with water. And so just as Mary instructed the servants, they obey him. It says in the second half of verse 7, so they filled them to the brim. And this is going to be important. They completely fill these jars of water to the brim, which means nothing else can be added. Verse 8, then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. So we have this incredible obedience and deference by Mary to say whatever your way Jesus whatever your will and we have these servants that she instructs to obey whatever he says and they do they fill these jars that each contain 20 or 30 gallons to the brim now it's interesting there's there's a lot of detail here there's in fact six stone jars that had been there for Jewish purification We've got the approximate amount of gallons here. We know that they are filled to the brim with water. 
And if you're into at all some of the symbology and numerology in the Bible, uh, you may know already that the number six is actually really significant in the Bible. Number six symbolizes the number of man. Number seven is the number of completion. There's seven days in a week. And at the end of this, the creation week, God rested on the seventh day. That uh, very much symbolizes a completeness. Man was created on day six, and there's a sense of incompleteness to the number six. We're not quite to seven, and the number six represents humanity. So the fact that we have six jars, symbolically, if you think about this, it's humanity's attempt at, at trying to fulfill the pleasure of these guests, the wine. And so we have these six jars that by human strength and human understanding can't fulfill the need at this wedding, but enter Jesus who fills them up and performs an amazing miracle and completes them. So if you're interested in that kind of symbology and numerology is pretty pretty cool imagery here uh, as to what Jesus is doing. The fact that John includes these details uh, is he is also thinking about this as well. Here we are in verse 9. Here's what happens next. When the chief servant tasted the water, and then there's some parentheses here. All right, There's a parenthetical addition that John is adding to, to this. It says, after it had become wine. So that's what's in parentheses. He did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out fine wine first, then after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Verse 11, Jesus performed the first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. Okay, so let's back up and describe the steps of this miracle. First, Jesus tells the servants to use the six jars that aren't normally used for wine. We've talked about the symbolism of this that would be used for purification. These aren't typical wine jars. They're stone pots where people would have used them basically to wash their hands and perhaps their feet at this wedding. And he tells them to fill the jars with water to the brim which they do, which means nothing else can be added. The humans do all that they can, which is to take the water and fill up these six jars. But then Jesus completes the miracle. He says to the servants to take the water out of the jar and take it to the chief servant who tastes it. And we are told by the author in this parentheses that sometime between filling them to the brim and taking that water to the chief servant, this water turns into wine. He tastes it and realizes it is the most excellent wine that has yet to be served. So some interesting lessons here. Jesus had them fill the jars up fully. Nothing else can be added because Jesus is enough. Jesus does the miracle, but he doesn't do it in a flashy or overt way. There's no words he speaks over the pots. There's no 
hand touching. There's no loud demonstration. There's no drawing of attention to himself. Sometimes miracles happen in our very simple obedience to his instructions. Sometimes just being faithful and doing what seems mundane or simple or ordinary is where Jesus does his best work. Fill the jars all the way to the brim and then take some to the chief servant. That's it. That's all they had to do. And that's exactly what they did. I wonder what they're thinking at this point. If I'm a servant and I've just filled six stone pots that normally would not have any wine. There's no leftover wine in this. There's not, these are purification jars. I know that these jars contain water and I've just filled them with water to the brim. Nothing's been added. And then I'm supposed to walk to the chief servant with this water. And I'm thinking the whole time there, what, what is he going to say? Great water? Like, I can't imagine what's going on in their minds, but they're obedient. They do it and they take it. And what's the effect? It is the best wine yet. And imagine the disciples standing there slack jawed as this chief servant declares, this wine is amazing. And he takes it to the groom and he says, you did something unusual. You save the very best for last. And the servants know this was not the very best. This was water a few moments ago. And that guy, that guy Jesus that we obeyed, he had to have done something miraculous. So the servants know it's Jesus's power and his disciples know. In fact, John says in verse 11, he displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Remember, these guys were already somewhat convinced that this was the Messiah. Remember Nathaniel in our last podcast episode when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree and Nathaniel is blown away by this. And he says, you must be the Messiah. And these guys are already pretty convinced that the guy that they're following, they gave up John, they gave up some of their livelihoods, they gave up whatever else they were doing to follow him. They're, they're pretty convinced. But John notes here, his disciples believed in him. This is the first showing of his glory. Now his hour had not yet come, and we'll see that. His hour will come. His hour is crucifixion, when ultimate glory is given to God the Father, because Jesus defeats death. That's his hour that's coming. But in this very simple moment, where Jesus shows up at a wedding, an ordinary event, people celebrating. So our lives ebb and flow. We have highs and lows. We have times of joy, times of sorrow, and times in between. And Jesus shows up at all of that. And Jesus meets our needs. We have something as simple as we ran out of wine. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to create a social faux pas. Jesus shows up. And it may not always be in the way that we expect or request. It may not be that he performs a miracle. He didn't have to turn this water into wine. But he did. He chose to. He did. And so for us today, as we live out our lives, 
remembering that Jesus is with us in the good times, in the bad times, in the in-between times. And simple obedience is all he is requiring. Simple obedience. Fill the pots with water to the brim. Now take some out and take it to the chief servant. Such simple directions. It may be that Jesus wants to display his glory in your very simple obedience. So that wraps up Jesus' first miracle. The second half of this chapter, we find Jesus in the temple, and he is not happy about the way that the people have been treating it. So join me in the next episode as we take a deep look at how Jesus handles cleansing of the temple and consider what might Jesus need to be cleansing in our own lives. Thanks so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for My Ordinary Life. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Until next time, be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforTheOrdinaryLife.com.